never been the be-all, end-all to us, to our group. Whether our guys know that it's 48 minutes that we all have to play and play together, and regardless of who's starting or who's finishing or who's in rotations, that that you know, our rotations have varied a lot this year for some of the same reasons. So, um, you know, that's that's what made sense. That's Quinn Snyder describing his lineup decisions ahead of the matchup against the Seas on Wednesday. Two games, two downed. Utah on a four-game skid post-All-Star break. We'll get into what happened, and you'll also hear from Mike Smith, analyst for AT&T Sportsnet. He gives a player's perspective on what's going on, and we'll preview tonight's matchup against the Wizards. This is Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga. Podcast is brought to you by Fanatics. For authentic Utah Jazz player gear, including jerseys, shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. That's fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. What's happening with the lineup? Reporting from The Athletic comes Wednesday. Initially, it's going to be Mike Conley going to the bench. Royce O'Neal inserted with the starters. Then the update from Shams and Tony is that Joe Ingles won't be with the first five. Whatever happens, doesn't matter. It's all about unlocking Mike Conley, figuring out how to best use him with this team. The reason why he acquired him in the offseason, team goes all in to get better, contend in this Western Conference. Whatever it is, everybody needs to know their role. Do your job. Reason I'm not an accountant, because I don't know the difference between I-9 and I-80. I do my job. A podcast host. I host podcasts. Whatever the role is, it needs to be spelled out, and each player needs to have no confusion at that. Read Andre Iguodala's memoir over the offseason, titled Sixth Man, and understand his story. He comes out of Arizona, big draft pick, Goes to Philadelphia, he's playing alongside AI, sees a real face of the franchise. He becomes that in and of his own right. Once AI leaves, he gets traded away to Denver, has the opportunity to go to Golden State in free agency. He does that. Once he's playing on the Warriors, he sees a team that's starting to get there to those championship aspirations. He starts with Mark Jackson, then when Steve Kerr comes... He's being asked to come off the bench. His first thoughts when that happens. This from Six Man. I had never in my entire NBA career come off the bench. A million things went through my head. Was he really saying I'd earned it? Or was he just trying to soften the blow of telling me that I'd lost a step? Was this the beginning of the end for me? I didn't want to think so, but every player knows that his days are numbered. And when a starter is turned into a bench player, it's just one of those moments when you begin to wonder if the end is coming sooner than you think. It may sound like it's ego, but you have to understand the depth of it for an NBA player. Joe Ingles started the past two years. His best time as professional is as a starter. You can see those bench starter numbers, lineup configurations. David Locke at Locked On Jazz did a phenomenal job going through that. Asking somebody who started to move to the pine for the first couple of minutes, it's a mentality switch. And whatever happens in terms of these rotations, they have to make sure that it's getting right 
so that everybody can play to their maximum and play to the point where this team can compete in the playoffs. Right now, and Wednesday was the indication of it, they aren't as good as Boston or Houston. If they come up with the effort that they did on Wednesday, they are better than Phoenix and San Antonio. And if that occurred, we're talking about something different. 2-2 two and two over the homestand instead of 0-4. Oh Monday, Utah goes down 131-111. to 111. They allow 66 points in the paint. Compare that to 42 for Utah. Phoenix shoots 60% from three. They have a third quarter where they score 37 points, outscoring the Jazz by 11. It's a difference of playing to that level coming out of the break. Wednesday was encouraging to see that fight, and we saw some great basketball. Donovan against Tatum in the second quarter was as good as it gets. Donovan scores 20. Jason Tatum scores 18. Tatum's trajectory continues to explode. This time last year in February, he's averaging 16. Now, during this month, he's going to be player of the month, scoring 30 points a game. Tough shots, fadeaways. Donovan doing the same, attacking Cantor. Those big dunks. Game wasn't decided till the fourth quarter where Marcus Smart hits three threes in a row. There were signs in that second frame from Donovan that he can lift things to another level. Ultimately, this is a group problem. Everybody needs to sort it out. Defensively, probably is going to be the place that you look at. I was surprised by Monday. 134.1 was the defensive rating. That is the worst of the entire season for Utah. Where can they take the tone defensively as they continue to improve on offense? Those are the issues, in my estimation. We're monitoring it, and we'll have updates as we continue here on the podcast. Let's get to Mike Smith. Part one of our conversation. He gets into the mentality of that type of situation, finding out that you're starting, then maybe not. What's happening with the Jazz? But first, I started off asking him why he chose basketball. This guy that came out of high school playing volleyball, playing football. Why do you choose basketball over those other sports? Here's Mike Smith. I don't know. I, I think I fell into it. If if that makes any sense, I went to a football powerhouse high school, and I also went to an inland high school, so not a beach high school, that had a boys or men's volleyball team. Those are both both really unique things. Uh, the other schools in my league did not have a volleyball team, and. I basically was sick of my friends after football and basketball, and they all went on to baseball. And I said, I got to do something different. I got to get away from these guys. I got to branch out and meet new people. And fortunately, we had a math teacher who fell in love with the game of volleyball, and he developed his own program. And and so I kind of lucked into that one. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 coordinated. I was always uh, hand-eye gifted, like I could aim a ball at a target really well or I could feel a ball in my hands and so I became a setter at six foot ten I was the quarterback on the football team so I could throw a ball I could catch a ball and certainly I could shoot a ball but I mean I don't don't know if I'm like born with that kind of stuff or if I just worked my butt off in it because that's all we did as kids is played at the school and in the street uh outside whether it was over the line baseball we didn't play volleyball in the street that that was something i never even played till high school but football touch football and basketball it just seemed like that's all we ever did we got home did our homework and we couldn't wait to get outside in the neighborhood and play those kind of sports 
How transferable were those skills going from volleyball to basketball? Well, well, volleyball to basketball are really related. So there's a lot of footwork. There's a lot of coordination. Uh, as I said, I was a setter. So as a setter, you, you, you have to have good vision. You're kind of, it's hard to imagine, but you stand, you know, perpendicular to the net as you're the setter. And when the ball comes to you, you're kind of looking out your right eye at the nets to my right shoulder. And I'm watching the blockers to my right and the defensive schemes as I know where my hitters are going to go. So all I have to watch coming the other way is the ball. I don't need to watch my hitters. I know where I need to put the ball. And the put, you put the ball in a set place uh, unless you've predetermined where to go. Uh, and then you've got to be able to move and you've got to be able to block and you've got to be able to you know, control a ball. Um, I, I, I guess I was blessed with good court vision because those skills to me carried over as quarterback and setter. And, and I was a pretty good passer for, for like a big man in basketball at six foot nine or 10 in high school, even though I was a center at the high school level, I still was a, a passer and kind of a, uh, like an agile, nimble outside player in high school. I still would post up right against guys that were weren't my size but I never overpowered players with you know strength inside I'm still 225 pounds that's what I played at in college which is crazy to me it's some you know 30 plus years in the past but but I always felt like basketball and and volleyball had skill sets that were not only related would help each other and then I felt like volleyball was so kicked back after a very intense football and basketball season Maybe that's why I gravitated towards it, because it was fun. It was something new. It was fun. It was a new challenge. But it wasn't as intense. Like I said, I went to a football high school. It was almost expected that we would win. And my senior year, we did win. We, we went 14-0, and and, and uh, that was like the fifth time in 10 years we had won, I guess in Utah, what would be the equivalent of a state championship. If you thought you learned footwork from volleyball, what did Kevin McHale teach you being able to watch that up close? You know, uh, I was not as physically gifted as Kevin, and that's only to say, I'm only going to say that in terms of length of my arms. So Kevin had really big hands and really long arms. He was only a quarter inch taller than I was, but yet he could outreach me by eight inches as we put our hands straight up in the air. And so it was baffling to me like this guy is a freak of nature so yes he was he was incredibly gifted at how hard he worked with his post moves um and we used to play every day after practice kevin and i and ed pinkney and joe klein every day every single day after practice would play in the post and play games to five baskets if you made it you stayed on new defender came on if you missed new offense and then we would rotate and i won plenty of games against him but he won the most. And it really was like going up against a seven foot four guy that had touch. So imagine the size of a Mark Eaton or a Yao Ming, but a guy who was fluid. Kevin was fluid. Like he had really gifted touch in his fingertips. So he could shoot and he, he had those up and unders. But even if you guessed correct defensively or forced him a certain way, he had incredible length to shoot over you. Um, Great guy, gifted basketball player. It's funny, almost like an Andy Reid uh, pre-scripting 
the first 20 plays of the Super Bowl, McHale would do such things. He would look at an opponent and say, okay, we're playing the Hawks. I got Kevin Willis tonight, and then I got Cliff Livingston coming in. So against Kevin Willis, uh, and he would script like his first five moves. I'm going to go here, and I have a counter. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't go for my first move, I'm shooting it, and that sets up move number two. So almost like a quarterback in an offense, like a Belichick, he, he kind of pre-scripted how he was going to attack a defender, and it was a beautiful thing to learn. Uh, I learned from some of the very best. Uh, Bird was incredible at how gifted he was and how well he saw the court and how well he could shoot and people forget and don't realize how strong he was. He was country boy strong, like with really big wrists and elbows and gnarly hands. And once he had the ball, you couldn't get the ball away from him. And just uh, amazing to learn from. And it was fun. Let's get to this current version of the Jazz and what happened on Wednesday. What do you make of that whole situation? And how would a player react to, in the morning, finding out that they're going to go to the bench and then once it comes to game time, they're actually in the starting lineup? Well, I'm going to dig a little deeper and uh, try and be accurate as I can, okay? So Mike Conley deserves to start. He's, he's a 12-year vet who's arguably all-star worthy kind of player all through his years as a Western Conference performer, but there was no room for him to be on the, on the all-star team with Harden and Westbrook and Chris Paul and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, right? So he's never going to make an all-star team in his career. And that's just kind of timing and unfortunate for him but he's he's certainly been a great player and last year is arguably his best statistical year so to tell him he doesn't deserve to start or shouldn't start and i'm not trying to coach the team i'm just kind of giving you a player's mindset um that's a difficult thing to do he's used to being a starter he should be a starter now it's also impossible to ignore that when mike was out and joe ingles started the jazz won 19 out of 21 I know the numbers don't actually like coincide perfectly, but for the large majority of that is when Joe's playing great and Joe's having that great month of December and January where he averages 13 and seven, he shoots 49% from three and the team rolls through a stretch of, you know, 21 games. So what should happen? I don't know. I mean, you got to have Joe on the floor. You got to have Mike on the floor. But here's what has happened, and and this is why it's difficult. Serendipitously, the Dallas Mavericks gave a little, you know, code to the rest of the NBA because I don't know if they did it on purpose, and if they did, then give Rick Carlisle a ton of credit. But in a home game at the tail end of this 19 of 21 streak, it's, it's the last win right before the Jazz lose five in a row. They guard Joe Ingles with Seth Curry. So I don't know if that was by design, but it might have been because they were putting their best event, best two defenders on Donovan and Bogey, who both were on a tremendous run as well. And if it was by design, then like I said, give Rick Carlisle a ton of credit. But what they did is they guard Joe Ingles with a smaller defender. And I'm sure gave him the instruction, don't let him go left and don't let him turn the corner. And Joe did not have a great game. They don't know offhand how many he scored or how many he didn't score. But I know the game comes down to the wire, and the Jazz end up winning the game. It was really close, though. But, of course, they were rolling. They were at home. They they end up winning that game. 
this league is a copycat league, and so what teams end up trying to do is they'll they'll notice things like that. So the next team to play the Jazz was probably I don't remember if it was Portland or Houston. It might have been Houston, and it might have been Houston uh, without Capella, right? Because they were trying to trade him, so they went small. It might have been the Houston game after the Kobe Bryant death. It was. And it was. Okay, so no Harden and no Westbrook and no Capella, and they came into Vivint and won. But what did they do? They played small, and they switched everything. So like what Dallas did, it's a lot more the same. Joe's guarded by a smaller defender who can move and slide his feet with him and prevent him from turning the corner. Well, that kind of becomes the recipe. Now, all of a sudden, two games in a row, Dallas takes him to the wire, a jazz team that was unbeatable. Houston beats him. Huh. Whoever played him next. At San Antonio, at Denver, at Portland. Uh, There you go. At San Antonio, they do the same thing. Guard Joe with a smaller player. It might have been DeJounte Murray. might have been DeRozan. But I feel like it was DeJounte Murray. And sure enough, victory. The Denver game was always going to be a tough game, and the Jazz actually played really well that game. Didn't they make a ton of threes? They made 17 threes and lost. But it was the second night of a back-to-back going from San Antonio to Denver. That's almost an impossible one. They lose that one. Anyway, my point is, teams are defending the Jazz differently right now. And whether it was by design by Dallas or the small ball of Houston, teams in the league notice and they start to defend teams a different way, and they're like, huh, okay, if we can take away that guy, maybe he's the catalyst. And Bogey and Mitchell are easily our two best players. Gobert in a different way, right, defensively and anchors the middle and deserving of an all-star, but offensively. And the Jazz, I feel like, are an offensive team, must shoot well to play well. They don't have the defensive personnel they've had in the past. Rubio and Crowder and Alec Burks were much better defenders. But that's okay. You adjust an offense to your personnel. The personnel this year is a great shooting team, and when they're great, they're shooting well. And so teams figure, huh, how can we slow this shooting team down? And I feel like they feel like Mitchell and Clarkson are good enough and athletic enough that they're going to get their own shots no matter how we defend them. And if you look at the last results, those are two guys who are doing that. Donovan's been outstanding against really good defenders lately. Bogey's begun to struggle. Joe has really struggled for a month and a half, and I feel like teams are saying, if I can slow down Joe and guard Bogey closely and make his shots more contested, we can beat the Jazz. I feel like that's what teams are saying. That's their recipe. Because Bogey statistically is the best wide-open shooter in the game right now. You give him an open look, he's knocking it down better than any other shooter. Better than Buddy Heald, better than Harden, better than anybody. So teams are saying, huh, let's make him drive. Let's not let Joe drive, let's make Bogey drive. And it's just funny. It's, it's kind of the ebb and flow of the league. It's what happens. You, you go through a stretch where you play like four really good defensive teams and they, they kind of copycat each other and they figure out a way to beat you and, You lose a little swagger and confidence, but then you regain it. That's kind of been the jazz. I feel like tonight they'll play well. feel like they're going to catch their rhythm. They'll win tonight. They'll go to Cleveland and win. They'll go to New York and win. And then they'll be in a much better state of mind to go take on the Celtics in Boston. 
you hit on a, something that I want to touch on, how it's shifted from a defensive identity to offensively. How does Utah regain that defensive prowess that they've had while admittedly not having those same pieces that were defensive guys as they have in previous years? You can do it in a variety of ways. And so Quinn, Quinn comes from the mindset, not, not completely right, but he comes from, he played for Krzyzewski, but he, all, he also has a lot of pop of his influence in him, right? Coaching their D-League team and being an assistant for there and being an assistant in Atlanta for Budenholzer, who's a pop disciple. So if you think about it, I used to always ask Greg Popovich, I said, Pop, you guys got Tim Duncan and you're lame, you're, you're bottom third of the league in offensive rebounding. He goes, yeah, Mike, by design. I go, you don't get any steals. He goes, by design. I go, you don't force any turnovers. By design. You don't block any shots except the ones Timmy gets. Yeah, he goes, we're aware of all that. And so that's a really candid conversation with me as like a broadcaster and Greg Popovich and him teaching me that steals, blocks, turnovers forced, and, and, and things of that nature, offensive rebounds, are not that important to him, or at least were not when he had Tim Duncan and a very solid defense and a great offense. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Jazz numbers, you'll see the same thing. Even with a Gobert, they're bottom three in the league in blocks. Right. They're bottom five in the league in steals and offensive rebounds and you know turnovers forced. They don't do those things. So, A, it's really not a part of their nature, right? Joe's not that player. Bogey's not that player. Uh, they don't have defensive stoppers out there other than Rudy. But I think it's been embraced by Quinn and the staff to say, okay, it's not who we are by nature. Let's counter that by acting another way. Okay, so let's not overextend ourselves. Let's not go for steals. Let's not go for too many offensive rebounds. Let's not go for blocks. Let's be solid. Let's guard our man. Let's grab the defensive rebound. Let's be top five in the league in that. And then let's come down and let's get a good shot so that when the other team comes down, they're going against our set defense. And I really feel like, now this is just me. This is just Mike Smith talking. I don't speak for the Jazz. Nobody's told me what their thinking is. And, you know, I'm not at every practice, so I don't know all the philosophies. But I kind of feel like that's how you morph from a defensive-minded or a defensive personnel team from years past to where they are now which the league has changed too, so it's almost required uh, a metamorphosis to a more offensive or a more shooting, you know, proficient type team to win. The Warriors have kind of changed that whole mindset that you have to shoot, have to shoot threes to win. And those are my thoughts. I mean, I, I think it's twofold, right? Their personnel is such, but I think, B, they don't overextend where they don't have to so that most teams face a jazz-centered, balanced defense and if you look at one stat that never gets talked about it's like field goals that are made that were assisted upon the jazz are top five in that category in terms of limiting the number of assisted field goals for the opposition in other words the opposition goes against their set defense there's no easy passes to layups there's no easy passes to things they really have to work 
And so I think at times that's more important than some of those other categories. Where can this team go from here? What's the comparison that you see from the rest of the Western Conference? Gosh, early on, during that 19 out of 21 stretch, well, they think, which I think they can get back, I thought they were a two or three seed. Uh, right now they sit at the six spot, but you know they're two games from four and they're one game from seven. So realistically, there's no way they're going to climb to one and there's no way they're going to fall to eight. So really within that realm, anything between two and seven is possible with, you know, whatever games there are left, 23 or 22 games left. But most likely, now that they've gotten off to a bad start, uh, let's see, they had, I think they had 28 games remaining at the All-Star break. Have they lost four straight to start yep. the second half? Yep, 24 left. So 24 left. And those have been at home. So the home court's gone. It was 16 and 12. Now it might be 12, 12 home, 12 road left. And of those 12 road left, I think it's six against five or six against winning records and six against losing records. So you got to win those losing record teams on the, on the road. 24 left. They could easily go uh, 16 and eight, most likely 14 and 10. And if they go 14 and 10, then they're going to finish in the, the four, five, or six spot. I really don't think at this point they're climbing a two or three. It could happen. I mean, it, it could happen, but I kind of feel like Denver and the Clippers will be two, three. So that means, gosh, if you're six, you probably get Clippers three. If you're seven, you get Denver two. And four or five, depending on what happens in that range, you're going to get Houston or OKC. Any way you slice it, you're looking at a tough first-round first round matchup. I'd say the goal's got to be to get home court. So they've certainly got to be vying for four. And if you're going to get four, they better go 16 and eight, in my opinion. Who's winning the sock battle this year? Your lemma. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me who's going to win the title. No. I want the sock battle. Well, put it, what people care put it about. Way. I, don't, I don't buy any new stuff. So, uh so Alema, Alema tries much harder than I do, and he's really good at it. If you want my breakdown of all that stuff, Thurl, Thurl's got some really great out-there suits, and so he'll, he'll incorporate some really fun colors. I, I love what he does. His, his shoe game leaves a lot to be desired, and I say that in the nicest way because he's a size 16, so he's very limited on what he can do. Alema and I, on the other hand, only wear a size 12 and a 13. So uh, I think my shock shoe game, if you combine the both, is the best. Mm -hmm. Alema's sock game is the best. Thurl's suit game is the best. I like my sport coat game. But overall, I think Alema, Alema brings it every night. I think he's, he's the most fun. I, I try to be classy with a bump. So I like to be really elegant and classy with just a little bump somewhere. That's either a pink shirt or just a, a pattern in my jacket. Uh, but that's kind of uh, a lemma is a lemma super fun too. So, so put Thurl and a lemma, you know, one a and one B in the fun category and they really do it well. And just put me, I like to be classy with the bump, but I still say my shoe and sock game is there. We're in the midst 
midst of the sock wars, we have to stay vigilant. Make sure to follow along at the Mike Smith way on Twitter as he updates you on the important things in life. Stay tuned for part two of that interview. He was phenomenal talking about his journey into broadcasting, lying his way to getting a spot with the Clippers. He actually started this crazy business with Craig Bullerjack as a BYU color commentator. You'll hear that story and more. Mike Smith, Monday, will have the conclusion of our conversation with him. He hit on what today's about, which is a game against the Wizards, have to get back in that rhythm. Brad Beal averaging 40 since the break. What will Quinn and this coaching staff do in trying to stifle him? And then you think about this stat. One and eight when he scores 40 plus. So do you want to stifle him? Will you just allow him to get his? The final stretch run is getting into that rhythm that Mike brought up. Confidence against the Wiz, confidence against the Cavs, then the Knicks, and preparing for those games against the Celtics come next week. They're going for four on the road after a tough homestand. How does this team respond? We'll have you covered on a recap of the Wizards game on Monday, and you'll hear part two of that conversation with Mike. Thank you, thank you for listening to the podcast. We crossed over 200,000 downloads on this silly thing, but we're always looking to grow, so keep letting people know that you listen. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Five-star reviews, that's all I ask of you. It helps other people find the podcast. Grow the tent. Let other people know that you're listening to Round Ball Roundup. I'll catch you on Monday. I'm JP Chunga, and until next time, bye for now.